we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatments of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, June the 2nd, 2017. I'm your host, Sinead Sanders, and I'm joined here today by my co-host and operator, Allison Cole. Hi there. This coming Thursday, June 8th, is World Oceans Day. Declared in 2009 by the United Nations, World Oceans Day aims to educate about the importance of the oceans and of the many threats they're currently facing. We've got two guests in the studio today who are going to talk about just that. Our first guest is Sue Waters, a coordinator for the local chapter of Sea Shepherd, an international nonprofit marine conservation group that engages in direct action campaigns to protect the world's oceans and marine wildlife. Sue joins us to talk about the latest of Sea Shepherd's work, as well as some of the ways that humans are contributing to the destruction of the oceans. Following that interview, we'll be joined by local marine biologist, Dr. Abby Schwartz. Abby has background and training in animal behavior and ecology, and prior to retirement was an instructor in the biology department at Langara College. She's studied fish behavior in the field as a scuba diver and has been a vocal advocate and public speaker at events in protest of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, which would dramatically increase tanker traffic in the waters off the BC coast. Abby joins us to discuss the important role that sound plays in the ocean and the ways that noise from human activities is interfering with the lives of marine animals. But first, we're going to take a few minutes to tell you all about a couple exciting events that took place within the last week. We had Veg Expo happening downtown last Sunday, an exhibition of various animal-free products being made available to the public, as well as the Forward Food Summit, which took place at UBC on Wednesday. Let's start with that. Allison, what can you tell us about the Forward Food Summit? Yeah, so if uh, if our listeners recall, last week's uh, episode was dedicated to people who want to bring good food into institutions such as universities and hospitals, and I featured an interview with uh, with Christy Middleton of the Humane Society of the United States. And what she does is she has she takes part in a program called the Forward Food Program, which delivers free culinary training and education on promoting plant-based menus and learning how to create delicious plant-based foods in cafeterias and dining halls. And so she was here with her team this week at UBC, and they have actually gone to uh, 75 institutions across the U.S. and have trained 1,500 chefs so far. And this week's event was the first of its kind in Canada, first time they've been to Canada, and they were here on on my campus, University of British Columbia, where I live and work, and, and, uh, and they were here to train the chefs and then on uh, for two days, and then 
On Wednesday, we had a Ford Food Summit, which consisted of various speakers throughout the day that made a good case for the health and environmental reasons why we should shift to a plant-based diet, a more plant-based diet. And I was even really surprised. You know, this is part of my department, UBC Food Services. I um, I used to work for them actually directly a very long time ago, and I've been eating there on campus for the last 24 years. And as um, starting out as a vegetarian and now vegan for the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of changes come by in in that 24 years of eating on campus and you know things are getting better with in terms of options but I just feel like the food that they were being trained to make was like really just more exciting and they're actually advocating for uh, whole foods as well so like making burgers out of chickpeas and like really healthy options like that and the director of food services Colin Moore he even said And I quote, he said, the plant-based diet is the best way to eat. So I was really pleasantly surprised to see that, wow, my department, which serves like thousands and thousands, I think they said they have 20,000 transactions per day on campus of like serving people food. They want to start to go more plant-based. So, yeah, and um, Ken Botts and Chef Wanda White were there. We talked about them on last week's show, and they had uh, they had implemented, if you recall, the very first vegan dining hall in the world at the University of North Texas called Mean Greens, which they're... Um, they're so successful, like they're growing and growing in terms of profit and interest. And they were at the training this week. And I met Ken and he actually even told me that out of the out of the 75 trainings that they've done, he said that our group of chefs and cooks at UBC, and it wasn't just open to UBC chefs and cooks, but to anyone. So I actually met the executive chef of Whistler. He sat beside me on the bus on the way to lunch. <laughs> He's awesome. And and yeah, and uh, he said that they were the most talented crew of chefs they've ever trained. So that was exciting to know just here at UBC. Yeah. So yeah, they said that they were an amazing group. And um, the executive chef at UBC, David Spite, he said that he thinks that veganism is the future of food and not just a trend. And he spoke, he gave a, a little speech, and he also said that the, the events this week were about thinking more plant-based and to open and, and create the space for that conversation, which has never been done before, really, at UVC. I am so thrilled and happy that my school and my workplace that that you know this is this is part of my community i'm so glad that we are starting to embrace veganism and plant-based diets so i i just look forward to things that happen in the future with us absolutely that's that's awesome yeah and as christy middleton said on last week's show when something is a trend year after year it's not a trend anymore it's right. here to stay it's part of our culture so so it's great to see so many businesses and uh, and individuals acknowledging and embracing yeah. this. And we saw that as well at Veg Expo. Yeah. Just quick note about this uh, program, Forward Food. It's a free training that they'll do anywhere. You just go to forwardfood.org if you're listening and you want to bring plant-based training to your community. But Veg Expo. 
Wasn't that amazing last week? Mm-hmm. That was yeah. great. So this was the, I think they said it was like the fourth or fifth annual Veg Expo. It started not too long ago, like years ago. And I have just seen, been seeing it grow and grow. There were over 11,000 people that attended last year. And this year they got a bigger venue and it was just as packed. Mm-hmm. And they had, they said, I heard them say they had 100 vendors and someone said 200 vendors. It seemed like more like 200 if you, yeah. would, if you would agree with that. And just vendors of like... Like everywhere, like lots of new businesses that are actually like vegan businesses that are were there to to sell their new products and to promote their new business and businesses. And I think just um, veganism is definitely growing. What were some of the highlights of Veg Expo for you? I spent five hours there myself. I could talk <laughs> about it for a long time. Yeah, I spent a while there myself. Um, I think the main highlight for me was just seeing how popular it was because, yeah, you know, as someone who's been vegan for almost 10 years you know you feel like you're it still feels like a sort of fringe thing but when you walk into something like that then you go oh you know you realize that that it's actually catching on and people are starting to get it but and yeah you know ditching animal products is isn't just a trend or a personal lifestyle choice this isn't like a gluten-free expo or something this is a justice issue for animals, for the environment, and for humanity. It's relevant to everyone living on the planet. So really, the the highlight for me was just seeing so many people starting to get involved with that. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Jen, actually, our co-host. It's her birthday today, by the way. Happy birthday, Jen. I know she's listening, but I also wanted to just commend her for doing her. She all like for most of that day, I saw her speaking with people for the Mercy for Animals table and having conversations with all those people that were passing by. So great work. There were other nonprofits there as well, like Liberation BC was there and Vancouver Humane Society. Sea Shepherd was there. It was just uh, great to have a place for those nonprofits to engage in conversation. I've I've done tabling at Veg Expo before too, and you get people that are just really, really interested. So it was great. Can't wait for mm-hmm. next year. And so much tasty food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, Allison. Yeah, no problem. Did you know that Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, has over 90 different shows produced by over 350 community members? This wide range of programming produced by our diverse group of programmers ensures that we have a show you'll love. We have shows on feminism, spirituality, disability rights, politics, unions, and parenting. We play jazz, indie rock, reggae, blues, and folk. We broadcast in a dozen different languages and have more First Nations programs than any other radio station in Vancouver. Find your show on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. All different, all the time. So our first guest today is Sue Waters, a coordinator for our local chapter of Sea Shepherd, an international nonprofit marine conservation group that engages in direct action campaigns to protect and conserve ecosystems and wildlife in the world's oceans. A longtime volunteer in the rescue of both domestic and wild animals, Sue strongly believes physical intervention Uh, She believes it's necessary to stop the most dire threats facing marine life. 
She joins us to talk about some of Sea Shepherd's latest work, as well as some of the ways that humans are contributing to the destruction of the oceans. Hello, Sue, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hey, thank you for having me. Very much our pleasure. So to start off, how did you first get involved with Sea Shepherd, and what kind of work do you do with them today? Um, I first got involved with Sea Shepherd ugh, as an onshore volunteer three years ago now. Um, I've been a longtime supporter, um, you know, buying T-shirts, donating money when I could. Um, and then about three years ago, I was at a pipeline rally, and I had a volunteer from another uh, environmental organization walk up to me. I was wearing my Sea Shepherd T-shirt and just asked me if I was involved with Sea Shepherd. And I said, no, I'm a supporter, you know, and uh, this person um, proceeded to go on and sort of complain about, you know, the things they didn't like about Sea Shepherd. And it it, uh, it was interesting because it, it, uh, it really bothered me. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't really understand why, you know, somebody would do that or whatever. And so, you know, counter to what I believed he thought it would do, you know, I don't know, turn me away from Sea Shepherd. It actually made me search Sea Shepherd out and go, <laughs> okay, so what, you know, why, why is this out there like that? And uh, sort of discovered that the chapter wasn't really doing a lot. The chapters existed in Vancouver for a long time. Um, and then I just sort of stepped up and, and started offering my help, uh, basically with outreach and uh, fundraising is kind of what we do here locally. We also organize beach cleanups and, you know, sort of deal with a, a lot of, we get a lot of inquiries locally, you know, so we, we deal with that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and but you've spent a lot of time out on the ocean with Sea Shepherd. Though. I recently just did my very first campaign, which was Operation Milagro, the third leg of uh, Operation Milagro, which is our Vaquita Porpoise defense campaign that's happening in the Gulf of California. And I was on that campaign for three months as a deckhand on the That's ship. That's a tough uh, job. Yeah, Good it's, for a pretty, you. <laughs> it's a pretty and tough job. Do you get job. seasick? Because I know I do. No, you know, and I wasn't 100% sure if I if I would or not. But I luckily, yeah. I, I didn't. You know, we did have a few. Luckily, the Gulf of California, the northern Baja, is uh, it's a pretty gentle part of the ocean. We definitely get some storms and there was some pretty good swells some days but uh usually we were we were okay uh the ship i was on is the farley mowat and the farley mowat is an old coast guard cutter and so it's you know it's kind of tight quarters you know there's 16 of us on the ship we sort of live on top of each other and then we are day and night sort of patrolling this vaquita refuge and we are dragging for nets like illegal nets poachers nets that have been put down in this government sanctuary um what the poachers are after is a fish called the totowaba. And the totowaba is coveted for its swim bladder. Um, the swim bladder is, we don't 100% know what the uses are for. It, there's no scientific proof that it does anything, but it's uh, used in traditional Chinese medicine for all sorts of different reasons. Um, the latest thing that it's known for, of course, with the collagen trend, now they're pushing it for that. But anyway, it is, um, it's a really, really big problem. The The nets are basically what they're doing is they're catching everything that's out there. They're these massive gill nets. They have been killing off the vaquita porpoise, which is endemic to that part of the world. It is the most endangered marine mammal in the world right now. And on top of that, the totowaba fish is also in threat as well because because of the amount of poaching that's going on. The fish bladder, it's actually also called maw, is worth... Oh, they estimate about $20,000 per kilo. So it is rivaling right now the drug trade in Mexico. Um, wow. Yeah, they call it, it's been dubbed aquatic cocaine. And 
the amount being down there and San Felipe where we were we're in port is a fishing village so we see fishing happening while we're there and we're really just there to aid the government in patrolling the sanctuary so you know we see you know the big trawlers go out they're all going out and doing that legally knowing sort of the the situation down there it is really really hard to see but we are there specifically to pull up those nets and to aid the government Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. How many vaquita porpoises are there? Well, last estimation, we there are under 30 left. Wow. Yeah. And so we've seen their numbers in it's the last really decade. Serious. It's yeah. very serious. Yeah. They, you know, trying to save them at this point, the measures are getting very desperate. There has been talk, the Mexican government, this is something we don't support because Sea Shepherd is an anti-captivity organization. Um, they've been talking about trying to capture the last of the vaquita. And the vaquita are very uh, elusive species. Like They die in the nets very quickly, and that's why we are losing them. So to sort of round them up, I don't, you know, we don't believe that's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't support it. We do support the Mexican government in their attempts to try to keep the poachers out. But that's, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing to, mm-hmm. to aid them. Yeah. And speaking of fishing, here on the coast, humans have been consuming fish and other animals from the sea for thousands of years. Can you talk a bit about Sea Shepherd's stance on seafood? How are human appetites for marine animals affecting life in the ocean? Well, Sea Shepherd is primarily, I mean, we're primarily ocean conservation, anti-poaching organization. So that's, our main focus is anti-poaching. We do oppose other legal things that are happening uh, with the ocean's um, obviously the killing coves in Japan, and then we also oppose the Grind in the Faroe Islands. But mainly anti-poaching is what we're doing. Uh, we are we do promote veganism for con- because we are conservationists. Our, you know, our stance on seafood is we want people to stop. We want people to stop exploiting the oceans. Um, but we do say we will also want you to cut down. Like, our, you know, we, we're gentle in our advocacy that way. Uh, sea Shepherd always non-vegans are allowed to be involved we are a vegan organization but obviously everyone is welcome mm-hmm. um, can you talk a bit about some of the issues that are facing fishes and fish stocks in the ocean like overfishing or fish farming fish farming is a is a huge issue right now like what we are taking from the oceans is I mean, sadly, uh, marine life is not measured by individuals, by the powers that be. You know, we what we take, we measure in tonnage. And wild capture makes up 90 billion tons of wild capture per year. Aquaculture, fish farms, double that number. So 180 billion tons of sea life is being consumed or is being harvested, harvested, I use that word lightly, for human consumption. So, I mean, just looking at that number alone, you can imagine the the amount of strain that is being put on the ocean. I mean, fish farms, often people who in the animal use industries or whatever, you know, they, they, they claim they're better, they claim that they... Uh, they take the strain off of the ocean, but really the waste that comes from those farms, it all ends up back in the ocean. Uh, so it's definitely not a solution. And then on top of that, you know, we're feeding these fish in the farms, essentially with fish we're taking from the ocean too. So yeah, it's a, it's a big impact. Human consumption is a, is a massive in- impact. Absolutely. And uh, as you mentioned, on the ocean, Sea Shepherd crews don't only forgo eating marine animals, but all animal products. Everyone eats vegan on the ships. Can you talk a bit about how 
animal agriculture in general on and off the sea is is affecting the health of the oceans. Well, animal agriculture has a huge effect on the oceans, um, not only because of carbon emissions created by the animal agriculture industry. I think the last I looked was, you know, 18% of carbon emissions coming from uh, animal agriculture, which is rivaling transportation. I mean, so obviously that affects the temperature of the ocean, which will affect the currents of the ocean, which will, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen if those start to shift. Not only that, runoff from animal agriculture ends up in our oceans. Animals in factory farms are pumped full of hormones, antibiotics, and that doesn't go anywhere. That ends up back in our oceans. These farms function similar to mines and whatnot, you know, where they have these open air tailing ponds, essentially, where their waste goes. And we see breaches at mines and things like that with their tailing ponds. And these things happen in factory farming, in, in all farming, where this waste ends up breaching and it ends up in our waterways. So, I mean, it definitely has a huge impact. And on top of that, the fish that we are taking from the ocean, a huge percentage of that is actually being fed to land animals that we are breeding and consuming. So, I mean, I I have heard that they consume more than we do. So, you know, it is obviously a huge, huge effect on our oceans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if anybody's curious about how to eat less animal products, Sea Shepherd actually has a cookbook that I came across in a store. (laughs) We have two, Oh, there's two. Wow. I got to get the other one. Yeah. There's Sea Shepherd cookbooks with great stories about being on the sea and uh, lots of information and lots of delicious recipes. So Sea Shepherd asserts that if the oceans die, we die. That seems pretty straightforward, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, can you elaborate a little bit on, on what's meant by that? Well, I mean, the I mean, the ocean makes up roughly 70% of the planet's surface. So, I mean, all land on this planet is reliant on the ocean and its intricate systems. So when we say the we in if the oceans die, we die, you know, it's all life on this planet. It's not just human beings at all. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, it is pretty straightforward yeah. <laughs> when you come down to it. Like, yeah. if the oceans die, we die. I mean, it's true. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a hundred percent true. I did want to touch again, though, on the the ships being vegan. I did want to uh, point out that the ships are a vegetarian uh, starting in 1979, and they transitioned to vegan in 2002. Um, and we are vegan strictly because it is the environmental footprint is so low with a plant based diet. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say are the top things that listeners can do to help protect and conserve life in the oceans? Well, the number one thing is go vegan, which I don't, you know, think I really have to say too much on this radio show. (laughs) I mean, uh, adopting a plant-based diet, avoiding consuming marine life is is huge. The second thing is single-use plastic. I mean, we put 20 million pounds of plastic into the ocean yearly, and that number is only going up. As, I mean, oil production is not going down. So single-use plastics, avoiding them at all costs, going without your coffee, even though you want one if you don't have a reusable cup, I mean, that that's huge. That's a huge impact. Also, looking into your products that you use on your body, on your home, cleaning your home. Uh, sunscreen primarily, that's a big one. You know, when we are putting chemicals on our body and literally walking into the ocean with them on, it's good to know, you know, what's in those products and, and you know, try to make better choices uh, regarding them. So, I mean, to me, those are the top three things that all of us living in, you know, our privileged society that we can easily do. 
um, yeah, I mean, also, you know, supporting wonderful ocean conservation organizations like ours mm-hmm. uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. One thing uh, we had uh, Naomi Rose on the show a few months ago, and she was saying straws, straws oh, when you yeah. order drinks, yeah. a glass of water. Ask for your drinks without straws because those are just one of many things that just pile up endlessly. Oh, yeah. And they they call they they harm animals. You know, there there are certain products out there that they end up they end up in the ocean and they and they do they hurt animals. And they, if pe- people haven't heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, please mm-hmm. Google it. It is, from what I understand, the size of the state of Texas. Yes, and uh, yeah. I don't know if you know more about that, Sue. Where it's in the Pacific, and it's it it's, it's just it's all it's a part of where the ocean swells together, and so much garbage from all over the world that people create, including a lot of plastic. Oh yeah, goes Definitely. into that one big area, and it has created a landmass the yeah. size of Texas. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's terrifying, and yeah. it's not the only one. The, I mean, right. that is the largest, but all the different you know gyres. This is you know these little whirlpools. They're not little; they're huge that exist in the ocean they they uh you know they're all collecting they're all collecting garbage that just happens to be one of the largest Mm -hmm. so before we go I just want to ask you what are some of your favorite experiences being out on the water yeah um well let me see favorite experiences well pulling the nets pulling nets on Milagro for me helping animals has always been about hands-on work working with wildlife and domestic rescue so being able to pull those nets out of the ocean rescuing animals firsthand knowing that we you know we remove something that has just been sitting there just killing is is hugely rewarding uh extremely hard work um but some of the you know when it comes to wildlife seeing you know we saw humpback whales in the gulf of california was huge superpods of dolphins um, pretty spectacular. The seabirds in the Gulf of California are incredible. It is so diverse, the life there. Yeah, which, I mean, it just, you know, really pushes me to keep fighting because that area is set to shift quite significantly soon as we see these two species um, disappearing. How can someone volunteer and become a deckhand like you are, Sue? <laughs> well, you can always apply online. Like, I know there's other jobs, too. There is like, other jobs. Like you need helicopter pilots, for example. Yes, yeah. Some of the biggest people that we look for, marine engineers, huge. Yeah. We need marine engineers all the time. Um, people with ship experience, so people, sea captains, captains, sea captains and mates. Navy experience. Navy experience, yeah, because we do function our boats in military style. You know, there is the, all ships function like that, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody with that kind of experience, but anybody is welcome to be a Sea Shepherd volunteer. All you need to do is apply. Paul Watson, our founder, has always said what he looks for in a volunteer first and foremost is passion. And that is very true in how we crew. Right on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Sue, for joining us on the show today. No problem. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks uh, for having me. (laughs) Yeah. As we said, to become a volunteer or learn more about Sea Shepherd, support their campaigns, you can visit their website at www.seashepherd.org.
up with a fishing crew to go out and get a whale or two. Tell me what kind of men are these that sail upon the salty seas? Up in the rigging in the afternoon, swabbing the deck and sharpening our And you are listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio. That was part of a song called Save the Whales by Country Joe McDonald and what sounds like some humpback whales. And I think we're going to hear some more from them today. The power of sound and hearing is something that animals in the ocean rely on heavily for their survival and impacts their lives in more ways than many humans are aware of. Our next guest is here to shed some light on that. Dr. Abby Schwartz is a retired marine biologist with background and training in animal behavior and ecology. Prior to retirement, Abby was an instructor in the biology department at Langara College. She's studied fish behavior in the field as a scuba diver and has been a vocal advocate and public speaker at events in protest of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, which would dramatically increase tanker traffic in the waters off the BC coast. Abby joins us in the studio to discuss the importance of sound to animals in the ocean and how noise from human activities is interfering with the lives of marine animals. Hello, Abby, and thank you for joining us on Animal Voices. Thank you for having me. So to start off, how did we first start to become aware of the role that sound plays in the ocean? When did the modern study of underwater sound begin? It really began with World War I and II because of the use of submarines and underwater mines. That kick-started the development of uh, underwater acoustics. And then marine animal sounds gained scientific interest and importance in the Second World War when the very loud sounds of some courting fish species actually drowned out the sounds of submarines approaching the coasts. And so they had to be filtered out. Uh, here are three examples. In each case, the sounds have been called like pneumatic drills tearing up pavement. The Atlantic croaker, the striped cuskiel, and the weak fish. Those are sounds of animals courting, but they're much louder in the ocean. So 
Why is sound so important in the sea compared to vision or olfaction, meaning scent? Well, it's mostly because of the properties of water that favor the use of sound over vision and over smells. Sound travels four and a half times faster in water than in air. It can be used day or night, and the water can be clear or murky. It doesn't matter. And sound also travels much farther in water than it does in air. And the other important thing about sound is that it doesn't fade with distance so that it can be used reliably for communication between individuals over great distances, as some of the whales can communicate with each other across ocean basins. Visible displays need clear water and relatively short distances, and most of them can't be used at night. And olfactory signals travel only slowly, and they spread out rapidly with distance from the source. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are aware that marine mammals like whales and seals use and produce sounds, but can you tell us why sound is so important to fishes in the ocean? Yeah, it's really interesting. Originally, when fishes, many fishes, were found to make sounds, researchers thought that the main function of hearing in fishes was to communicate with each other by means of the sounds they made. But that changed when researchers discovered that the lowly goldfish and a variety of other species didn't make sounds themselves, but they had very good hearing. And sound discrimination abilities very like those of humans and, in fact, of other vertebrates. Uh, no naturally deaf um, vertebrate has ever been found, and all fishes studied so far can hear. And the basic anatomy and mode of operation of the inner ear in fishes is very much like that of other vertebrates. And so what were they listening to, if not just each other, and if not all of them made sounds? The evidence is accumulating that fishes and other marine animals use ambient sound, the soundscape, like our landscape, but acoustic, to, to get detailed information about their surroundings. And they can use it to communicate, to navigate, and to locate feeding, spawning, and wintering areas. We, as uh, terrestrial mammals, live in air. We can see the stars. And we're primarily visual animals, so we haven't appreciated how important sound is in the water medium. Mm -hmm. And one more thing about uh, fishes and sound, and that is fishes can hear best below 1,000 hertz, that is 100 cycles per second. And so in what follows, I'll be talking about this kind of sound as low-frequency sound, and it's really important. As land mammals, as, as you mentioned, humans are familiar with the concept of landscapes being the visible features of a given location, but we don't always consider soundscapes, the, the audible, the mix of sounds characteristic of a habitat. What kinds of sounds in nature make up the soundscape of animals living in the ocean? Let's see, some sounds have non-living sources. Examples would include thunderstorms, undersea earthquakes, surf, rain, tidal movements. And the next sound you'll hear is the sound of an earthquake undersea. So that's um, an earthquake, but many sounds are also made by animals. And these animals include mammals, fishes, and invertebrates. 
I'll start with marine mammals because people know most about them. The humpback whales and the orcas make sounds over a wide frequency range from less than 10 hertz or 10 cycles per second to over 100,000 hertz, depending on the species. And all of these marine mammals use sound to communicate with each other. The next sound you'll hear is a humpback whale male singing a courtship song. Orcas also use sounds for communication, but they also use echolocation. Those are clicks or short pulses of sound, and they use those in navigation. They locate and identify food, obstacles, and other whales. The next two uh, recordings you hear will be orca pods. The first is that of a resident pod, and these are communication sounds, not echolocation. The second sound is the sound of another orcapod, but this will be from a transient population of killer whales, not a resident population. <coughs> that one sounds so different and so otherworldly somehow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just love those sounds. Those are great. <laughs> so do I. I could listen to that for a long time. And when we turn to the fishes, there's about 33,000 species of bony fishes. And so researchers have barely scratched the surface in examining how many make sounds, what proportion, and so forth. But at least 800 to 1,000 fishes studied so far make sounds, and there must be many more. The sounds they make are generally below 1,000 hertz. And of course, that corresponds to what I said about their best hearing, also below 1,000 hertz. Now, fishes that make sound use them primarily in courtship and mating, and also when defending a food source, a mate, a nest, or eggs. Uh, the first set of sounds you'll hear, and it will be three different recordings, come from a fish uh, on the West Coast. It's called the plain fin midshipman. And in each case, the male is making a sound. The first sound you'll hear is a growl, which the male makes when defending a nest that he's building. The second sound will be a hum, which is the courtship hum designed to attract females. And the third sound is a grunt, which is used in defense of a nest that has eggs in it. All right, let's hear those. <laughs> That's the growl. The hum will go on forever. It sounds like a foghorn, but it isn't. And the third sound again is the grunt. So this is made by a male when he has eggs in the nest. The next sound is a chorus of oyster toadfish males singing, trying to attract females. Each one is trying to make a better sound than the next one. Mm -hmm. 
it's hard to pick which is best, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. The females must have some way of doing it. We don't know what that is. <laughs> the next sound is not a tonal sound. Instead, it's noise, and it's of a parrotfish feeding. Now, parrotfish have very strong beaks, and they chomp on coral. What they're looking for is not the coral itself, of course, but the polyps inside. And the last sound in this section are sounds that are made by herring. We recorded some of these. Herring make chirps. That's what we called them. But they're made by blowing bubbles out their anus. And so they have been called farts. And we have <laughs> no idea what their function is. Uh, they're rather melodic. <laughs> It's not theatrical, but it seems to do whatever is necessary. Herring farts, right on. Herring farts. <laughs> and actually, we know a lot less about marine fishes than we do about marine mammals, because fishes don't surface to breathe. We can't readily identify them by markings, like the saddles on orcas. And they're hard to follow, because the sounds of the research vessel itself may make them leave the area. And if we can't see them, it's kind of difficult to know where to go. But... It really is important that we increase our understanding of how fishes use and respond to sounds. And the best argument I can give here involves the endangered southern resident population of orcas. Mm -hmm. This population prefers Chinook salmon, which are large and fatty. And Chinook salmon themselves prefer Pacific herring, which are numerous and fatty. We've gathered some evidence, and so have others in Europe, that herring may avoid shipping noise. And if this causes herring to change their migration patterns or to miss feeding and spawning and wintering grounds, their populations will decline and there will be a knock-on effect on the orcas as, because as the herring decline, the Chinook may decline and the orcas will have a hard time. Mm -hmm. Some marine invertebrates also make sounds, usually while feeding. Here are two clips of sounds made by marine invertebrates. The first is snapping shrimp and the second is feeding sea urchins. Sounds a little like popcorn. It does, it's like um, hot fat frying in a pan. This is the sea urchin. And right now that sounds the same, like hot fat, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> We've heard from the marine animals now, the marine animals, but how are humans affecting the soundscape of animals in the ocean? Unfortunately, uh, the sounds generated by human activities have also become part of the soundscape, and it's not a nice one. Uh, this is referred to as noise because it's broadband, meaning there's a lot of frequencies present. And from a few hertz up to several hundred hertz, below or up to about a thousand cycles per second, a thousand hertz. And that is in the same range as most of the animal sounds and of the best hearing of many animals, including the baleen whales and all the fishes that have been examined. Um, the commonest uh, sound is shipping noise, and it has the greatest potential to drown out or mask sounds of biological importance to marine animals. 
So we're going to play several recordings. The first will be of seismic blasts, which are air guns that are used in prospecting for oil and gas. All right, let's hear those now. What's really interesting about that particular recording is that it was the seismic blasts were made on uh, Sable Island, and they were recorded across the ocean on the uh, west coast of Europe. And it just shows how far underwater sound can travel. Yeah, across the entire Atlantic. Yeah. It's, it, this it's is incredibly educational. Thank you, Abby. <laughs> I'm learning so much. <laughs> you know, I'm always learning about this, and I'm always amazed, and it always... We would never know any of this if it weren't for you bringing it here, because how many people get to listen to these sounds in, in their own environment? We, we're not usually under the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, out of out of sight, out of mind, out of earshot, out of mind. Absolutely. So uh, shipping noise is one thing that's affecting a lot of animals in the ocean. We have a clip of some shipping noise as well. We do. That's the next one. And just one note of caution here, and that is it can be loud or softer depending on how far the ship is from the, from the uh, animal receiving it. And it's one thing to measure sound levels at the source. It's something else to know what the animal is actually hearing. And for that, we have to have knowledge of the animal's hearing capacities, but also of how far away it is from the source. So be prepared to cover your ears. (laughs) Shipping noise. Other sounds that I'll mention before we all get back to shipping noise include pile driving. Pile driving is used for onshore construction projects, but it's also used to make stable areas for wind turbines. And we may think that wind turbines are benign, but in fact, they make noise during their construction and during their operation. They, we have two clips of wind turbines, and uh, they're coming up. But for now, let's listen to pile driving. That's one form. The next two clips should be of wind turbines. Okay, and the last one that I wanted to mention is active sonar. If anyone has seen the film Sonic Sea, you will know about these because it's been thought that active sonar may be responsible for whale beachings, where the whales are trying to get away. But unlike us, we can leave a room and shut the door. We can leave a party. But unlike us, the whales cannot do that, and they might be trying to get away. At the moment, the evidence is anecdotal. Now, there's a bit of evidence here that northern right whales, their populations are much healthier than, sorry, they are much less healthy than Mm -hmm. southern right whales because shipping occurs mainly in the northern hemisphere, and that's where most of the shipping lanes are. The population of, of northern right whales is diminishing. In the southern hemisphere, it seems to be thriving. When we go back to shipping noise, I have to mention Kinder Morgan because oil tankers are huge 
And unlike one oil tanker per week, Kinder Morgan is suggesting for its twinning project one oil tanker per day. So when Cousteau wrote The Silent World, the ocean was quieter in the 1950s than it is now, and something has to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had first met you at a screening of Sonic Sea at the Van City Theater. And yeah, in the film, they talked about the right whales and how the stress levels in the northern right whales were extremely high. They didn't know why. And then suddenly they just dropped to healthier levels. And they went, Mm -hmm. why is that? And when that happened was after 9-11. So all of this shipping traffic stopped after that. And so it was pretty clear, pretty clear the impact that this noise is having on animals in the ocean. We were talking about how when you go to a nightclub and you need to step outside because the music is too loud, you need to take a break and then you go back in. But the animals in the ocean, they can't do that. They're just just stuck there. So what can we do to reduce underwater noise pollution caused by humans? Well, there's several things. The first is to incorporate what's called vessel quieting technology. My MP is Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, and I spoke with him about this, I think, a couple of weeks after he first took office. And he recommended to me using military quieting technology on commercial vessels and, of course, oil tankers, and for that matter, any vessel. And I was surprised because I thought it was classified, but he said, no, it's not. Uh, The second thing to do is to slow down. Decreasing speed decreases noise. The president and CEO of the Chamber of Shipping of America, Kathy Metcalf, notes that slowing ships down also leads to greater fuel efficiency and decreases costs to the owners. I see this as a win-win situation. And Slowing down should be applied to all vessels, certainly to all commercial vessels, including oil tankers. But enforcement is critical. And I might add that in its proposal, Kinder Morgan said, and this is a quote, we cannot ensure compliance with speed restrictions placed on project-related tanker traffic, end quote. The third thing we can do is to reroute shipping lanes to accommodate migration patterns and seasonal feeding, breeding, and wintering grounds for fishes and whales. Mm -hmm. And the very last thing is don't use sonar, which can cause physical damage anywhere where whales are. Evidence from the film Sonic Seas is very convincing. Mm -hmm. And the point I'd like to end with is just the business paradigm, or maybe the paradigm that people have unconsciously bought into, is that other animals can, of course, adapt to our own way of life or to our own operations. And that just isn't true. If you look at energy as a pie, the amount of energy spent in resisting increases in noise or in having to make sounds louder or having to listen harder is taking up a greater and greater amount of space. And we must pay more attention to the lifestyles of other organisms. And please, we have to share the planet I think that's a beautiful note to end on and a very important one. Thank you so much, Abby, for joining us in the studio today. This has been so informative. To learn more about how sound affects animals in the ocean, I'd highly recommend checking out the documentary Sonic Sea, which is actually being screened at the Vancouver Festival of Ocean Films at the Van City Theatre this Sunday, June 4th at 3 p.m. And if you have any questions for Abby, she's a wealth of knowledge. And if you have any questions, you can 
can comment on our post of this show on our Facebook page and she'll answer them. <laughs> yeah, she's got so much information. So please do reach out. You have been listening to Animal Voices on 100.5 FM, CFRO, Co-op Radio in Vancouver, Canada, Unceded Coast Salish Territories. Please join us on our next show, Friday, June 9th, when we'll feature an interview with triathlete Dominic Thompson, who will share some information on both the athletic and ethical aspects of a plant-based diet in sports and as a form of activism. Before he joins us here in the studio, Dominic will be attending an event happening just up the street, which will mark the beginning of what's being called the Weekend for the Animals here in Vancouver. Allison, can you quickly tell us what that's going to entail? Yeah, so there's going, Vancouver Chicken Save is going to be having their weekly chicken vigil next Friday morning at 7 a.m. June the 9th at the northeast corner of Hastings and Commercial. That's the Hallmark Chicken Slaughterhouse. And then we're teaming up with them the next, or later that evening, for a film screening called Call to Rescue, Redefining Our Barnyard Story. That's Friday, June the 9th. Doors open at 5.30 p.m. Film starts at 6 p.m. That's in the Terracen Room at SFU Harbor Center in Vancouver. And this film is a beautiful and inspiring glimpse into the unbridled compassion on 15 farmed animal sanctuaries throughout the U.S. The rescued farmed animals simply are being who they are, are changing lives, lifestyles, and beliefs on both sides of the fence. So, it's a it, it's an incredibly heartwarming film. You can see the trailer on our Facebook or at call to rescue film.com and this is a free event please join us and then there's the vancouver march to close all slaughterhouses was a really huge event last year we had about 200 people there that's saturday june the 10th at noon at the vancouver art gallery wonderful so definitely check out those events and tune in to next week's show to learn more Mm -hmm. we here at animal voices want to connect with you online animalvoices.org is where you can stream shows or download the shows as podcasts read our show blog with detailed links and subscribe via iTunes. Stay in touch with us via our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and join us on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. You can also send us your suggestions and comments about the show, either on Facebook or via email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. To end the show today, we're playing a song by none other than the multi-talented biologist Dr. Abby Schwartz, our guest in the studio today. This is a song called Snail Mail. Snail Mail. Wonderful. Written and sung by Abby Schwartz. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Animal Voices today. And remember to be kind to the animals. letter honey send it by mail use the nearest available snail gastropod express nothing less will do gastropod express that snail mail to you I don't belong to email nation Don't want instant gratification Gastropod Express Nothing less will do Gastropod Express That snail mail to you 
too soon Slower is better I want to read it by a lover's moon They don't hurry consummation Gastropod Express Only the best will do Gastropod Express That snail made to you Oh, I want your letter But not too soon Slower is better I want to read it by a lover's moon Canada Post is one of my faves It offers me such lengthy delays Gastropod Express, it's their specialty Oh honey, send your letter to me Oh lover, deliver your letter to me